0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, May 15th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. UN observers in Syria get caught in the violence, we'll have details. Also, Iran executes a man who confessed on TV to the murder of a nuclear scientist.
1: We saw him on television. We don't know under what circumstances he came up with those confessions.
0: And later, a production of Wagner's Ring Cycle, inspired by the landscape of Iceland.
1: The
2: gods expressed themselves in the landscape. There's volcanoes. I mean, it, everything moves around.
0: Those stories and more ahead on the world.
3: RIS. The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. United Nations monitors in Syria found themselves in the midst of violence today. It happened in the northern town of Khan Sheikhoun. Opposition activists say that while a group of observers was visiting the town, government troops opened fire on a funeral procession. Several people were reportedly killed. And then the U.N. convoy was hit by a blast. The U.N. says three vehicles were damaged, but none of the observers were hurt. The world's Laura Lynch was in Syria all last week and at times was allowed to travel around the country following the U.N. observers on their visits. There is a video posted online of today's attack. We can't confirm, though, who the source is. Laura Lynch, so we're hearing this. Big blast, which apparently damaged at least the front of one of the white UN SUVs. We hear people screaming. What else is going on there?
4: Well, you can see four UN vehicles lined up, one behind the other. And when the blast goes off, it hits the very front vehicle in front of the convoy. And that seems to be where most of the damage hit. And then people just start to scatter The U.N. vehicles stay in place, the monitors stay inside the vehicles, but I'd say within a few seconds, they drive out of there very, very
0: quickly. Now, before we get to the perpetrators, when you were in Syria last week, you followed, as we said, the U.N. observers. How exposed in general are the U.N. envoys to violence like this?
4: Well, you think about this, Lisa. These monitors are driving into areas where there is still very live conflict going on. I went with them into into one town where the army did not accompany them inside the Syrian army because they said it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe for them because it was a rebel stronghold. And they drove into the middle of town. I turned back before they did with my crew. When those monitors came out, the rear window of one of their cars was smashed and the mirror of another car was smashed We do know that another convoy was hit by a bomb last week. None of these monitors are wearing anything more than a bulletproof vest. And they're in cars that are not armored and they're wearing soft hats. So these are, these are people who are exposed to a degree and are vulnerable and they're going into the middle of this.
0: The government of Syria and the opposition to the government in Syria routinely blame each other for this kind of violence against the monitors. We don't know who caused it in this case. Who generally gains from harm being inflicted on the UN monitors?
4: Oh, Lisa, that is the difficult question to answer here. You hear all kinds of conspiracy theories. I have talked to people who support the opposition, who say they don't trust the UN monitors, that they think they are actually acting as as little more than spies for the regime and that they will simply go and tell the regime what people are telling them. If you talk to government spokesmen, they want them there. But I've also heard from Government supporters who don't like the monitors there either, they, they see it as the rest of the world's sort of looking down upon Syria and they think Syria can take care of itself. So as the violence continues, all we know for certain is that the UN keeps getting caught up in the middle of this, the monitors, and it makes it increasingly challenging for them to continue doing their job. But they do keep saying that they are
0: there to do the work and that they're going to continue doing it. Was Laura Lynch in London. Thank you, Laura. You're welcome. A young Iranian man accused of spying for Israel was hanged today in Tehran. Majid Jamali Fashi had publicly confessed to plotting a bomb attack that killed an Iranian nuclear scientist two years ago. He was sentenced to death after a trial last August. Confessions, though, are often coerced by Iranian authorities. Tehran has accused Israel and the United States of assassinating several scientists in an effort to derail Iran's nuclear program. Khasran Naji is with the BBC's Persian TV service. He recounts the case against Fashi that was presented at the trial by the Iranian government.
1: According to the prosecutor, he's 26 years old. He's Iranian, born in western Iran. He's married and he has been in contact with Mossad agents in various neighboring countries to Iran, and they met several times in these countries and even in Thailand and once uh, he was taken also to Israel for training to go and bomb this particular block of flats where the scientists lived, and he says he didn't know who the man was until he heard from news that uh, the man was actually a nuclear scientist.
0: Uh, That man being Masood al-Mohammadi, who was killed in this particular blast. Now, the man who is being held responsible for this, who was executed, uh, Majid Jamali Fashi, what was his profession and was there any evidence that was presented that would tie him to Israeli intelligence Mossad and all of these places where he supposedly met with Mossad agents?
1: The prosecutor is not quite clear as to what his profession was. But the evidence is basically what we hear, what has been put out in public, at least in Iran, is based on his confessions. He's been confessing to all these things, and we saw him on television. We don't know under what circumstances he came off with those confessions. But I watched it, and it looked somewhat convincing. Um, They could have some evidence that they haven't made public, although I grant you that doesn't make sense. If they did have hard evidence, they should have come up with it and it would have made the case much stronger against Israel and Israel's alleged involvement in Iran and state terrorism in Iran.
0: Is this the first conviction and the first hanging that has happened as a result or execution that's happened as a result of
1: a conviction of of an alleged spy? As far as I know, this is the first one to do with the killings of Iranian scientists involved in the country's nuclear program. There were other people who were executed in the last year or two who were said to be spies for Israel and Israeli Secret Service Mossad, but not directly to do with the nuclear program.
0: Have the intelligence agencies in Israel or the United States or Britain, which Iran has also pointed the finger at, have they responded in any way? Have they denied any of the accusations?
1: Not the agencies, uh, CIA or MI6, neither of the two. But the governments have rejected the idea of being involved in killing Iranian scientists. Both the United States and Britain have condemned the killings. But not Israel, interestingly. Israel has kept very quiet, no comment one way or another, whether they are involved or not involved.
0: The BBC's Persian service is in London. Thank you. Thank you. Talk about a tough first day. France's new president, François Hollande, took off for Germany today for talks with Chancellor Angela Merkel. His plane was struck by lightning and he had to turn back. Hollande did eventually get to Berlin for the talks. He and Merkel don't exactly see eye-to-eye eye when it comes to economic policy. For one thing, Hollande wants to put a 75 percent tax on France's wealthiest. Now some French millionaires are threatening to move to a lower-taxed country. Here's a thought. They might want to consider Canada. But actually, a growing number of Canadians think that they're not paying enough in taxes. Here's the world's Jason Markolis.
5: Meet Dr. Michael Rackless. He wants to give more of his money to the Canadian government. I think that
6: we feel, as higher income earners, um, that we want to live in a society which is more equal, which is healthier, and we're prepared to pay for it.
5: Rackless recently started the organization Doctors for Fair Taxation. We met in a coffee shop in Toronto. Rackless doesn't like the rising inequality he's seeing in Canada. He blames it partly on tax rates that have been cut dramatically over the past three decades. Rackless points to research that shows that more economically equal societies are healthier societies. So I'm prepared to pay more taxes to live in a
6: higher-quality society. And, of course, I always have to quote Oliver Wendell Holmes, the esteemed U.S. Supreme Justice, um, who said that he didn't mind paying taxes because
5: he thought he was purchasing civilization. Rackless is calling for a modest tax increase on the top 10 percent of wage earners. He isn't a lone voice. In Ottawa, progressives recently came together for a two-day fair tax summit. Paying
2: taxes is a noble enterprise. Everyone should pay their fair share of taxes, including the rich and multinational corporations. We've seen the cuts, how they've disproportionately benefited the top 1%.
7: And I have a quote for you. You guys are going to find this one familiar. It comes from Stephen Harper. It says, I don't believe that any taxes are good taxes. I would suggest that that is post-reality politics.
5: Of course, there are plenty of people in the U.S. also calling for higher taxes, especially on the wealthy. Think Warren Buffett. But in Canada, this idea seems to be gaining broader support. A recent poll found that 64 percent of Canadians would be willing to pay slightly higher taxes to protect social programs. In the U.S., polls consistently show that about 2 to 5 percent of Americans think they pay less than their fair share. So how do two cultures living side by side come to view taxes so differently? There is a sense that in Canada we're comfortable with government as something that we need to have in our lives and something that we're willing to pay for. Michael Smart is an economist at the University of Toronto. He says the average American and Canadian now pay about the same in income tax. But he says the differing attitudes about paying those taxes goes all the way back to the origin stories of the two nations.
3: The United States was, uh, was founded pretty much on a principle of not wanting to pay taxes to their uh, overlords. Canada's story is very different. In fact, uh, our origin myth is that we were founded by the people who didn't want to stay in the United States, who were, who were loyal to the British crown and came here. And I think that idea has stayed in our culture and in our politics.
5: Now, before you start to think that all Canadians live to be taxed, let's take a step back.
2: Well, I don't think it's at all clear that they do like paying taxes any more than anyone else.
5: Ben Poshman is with C.D. Howe, a conservative think tank in Toronto.
2: It's a fairly routine finding in surveys that if you you can ask people uh, if the government should finance something that they believe is good, that they will say yes, the government should finance it.
5: If you ask people if they support education or health care, of course they'll say yes, argues Poshman. But if you just ask, are you yourself willing to pay higher taxes? Well, Poshman says you'll get different results. Poshman says there are plenty of Canadians who want lower taxes, but he says that the Canadian system of government requires more compromise, so anti-tax crusaders in Canada are much more moderate and muted than in the U.S.
2: Nothing like the uh, the salience of the anti-tax movement in the U.S. uh, represented by the Tea Party movement.
5: Many people I met in Canada, from all political stripes, were intrigued by the Tea Party.
8: I mean, I think as Canadians we view it, with a little bit of horror um, and a kind of voyeuristic fascination in some ways because it is pretty foreign to our
5: experience. Sheila Block is an economist with the Wellesley Institute, a progressive think tank. She thinks that Canadians are undertaxed. The challenge for progressives is how to get the word out.
3: Once upon a time, the world faced a crisis. The banks got greedy and the markets went wonky.
9: Everyone suffered.
5: This advertisement comes from the group Make Poverty History. It's promoting what it calls the Robin Hood tax in Canada.
9: It's
3: just a little tax. And it doesn't come out of your wallet. Instead, it comes from financial transactions.
5: Their proposal? Tax the banks. Several groups are now running pro-tax ads in Canada. Michael Rackless is encouraged by what he's seeing. It looks like in Ontario we're going to have our first
6: increase in personal income tax rates in 20 years. And so the pendulum is going to swing
5: in the, in the other direction in Canada. And you're happy with that increase? I'm very happy that, as we say, tax us, Canada is worth it. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Toronto.
0: More news and our GeoQuiz coming up. This is P.R.I.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Robert Lepage is big on illusion. He's a director, actor, playwright, and filmmaker from Quebec. He's directed operas, puppet theater, and even two Cirque du Soleil productions. A few years back, New York's Metropolitan Opera asked Lepage to design and direct a new production of Richard Wagner's four-part opera, The Ring of the Nibelon, The Ring Cycle. It turned out to be the most ambitious, expensive, and perhaps risky production the Met has ever put on. It had to use stunt doubles for the first time. A few weeks ago, as the Met was wrapping up its first run of La Page's 15-hour ring cycle, the world's Adeline Sear sat down with the
10: director. Robert Lepage once aspired to become a geography teacher. He loved to study geology.
2: So I'm very good at identifying tectonic plates and the movement of continents and volcanoes, and I was very much into that. And I even did a piece called Tectonic Plates.
10: Lepage made tectonic plates the dynamic centerpiece of the set he designed for the ring, in effect creating an earth-shaking set for an earth-shaking kind of opera. For this, Lepage wanted to evoke the landscape of Iceland, which made a big impression on him. It makes sense, he says, since the stories Wagner drew upon for the ring came from Icelandic and Norse mythology.
2: People mistakenly think of the ring as as a German thing. Of course, it's written in German and and it's a mythology that Wagner borrowed from the Nordic countries to create this thing. But it's originally from the um, Icelandic Eddas.
10: The Ring Cycle is essentially a story about the pursuit of absolute power, a magical gold ring that will allow its bearer to rule the world. This musical epic involves a lot of drama, drama that Lepage sees in Iceland's shifting landscape.
2: You understand why these stories come from a place like that, because the weather is constantly changing every five minutes. The gods express themselves in the landscape. there's volcanoes, uh, There are some an activity in this. I mean, it, everything moves around and, and you could feel where that mythology comes from.
10: The challenge was to translate that dramatic movement into a set, a single set for the four-part opera.
2: Something that had some kind of movement where you go from a, a cavern form to a mountain shape and then to a staircase, a natural stone staircase and then eventually it all kind of... Resolves into a huge giant forest and so so it was important that there was some kind of tectonic movement within the set.
10: So his team designed a shape-shifting set, nicknamed the machine. It's a ninety thousand pound structure made of twenty-four narrow planks connected by a central spine. The planks pivot to turn into a floor, wall, and interactive video screen. They also spin independently to create smooth or jagged landscapes. In the opening of the first opera, Das Rheingold, the Rhine maidens are lifted on wires attached to the rising set, and they seem to swim in the waters of the Rhine. It's mind-blowing to see and apparently terrifying for some of the cast. One of the Rhine maidens kind of freaked out at a tech rehearsal where they were practicing their high wire acrobatics. Don't be, Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Why had you? Don't be scared. There you go, Same girls.
11: Holy smokes. Holy
10: smokes. <laughs> Lepage says he often felt like Christopher Columbus, trying to convince everyone that they were not going to fall off the edge of the earth. Though one singer did fall off the edge of the machine. Soprano Deborah Voigt, who plays Brynhilde, slid off one of the low planks on her first night. And the machine itself had glitches, says New York Times Culture Desk reporter Daniel Waken.
11: The set had a number of problems, Mechanically, things not working correctly uh, uh, at key moments in performances. And also there was um, a fair amount of creaking and noise as the set was being manipulated.
10: On the opening night of Das Rheingold, the machine got stuck in a climactic scene. Lepage says kinks are inevitable when you try to push boundaries.
2: There's some... Amazing, amazing moments in the theater and there's moments of despair because you go, why did we get ourselves into something like this? But I mean, you know, you can't make omelets if you don't break eggs. And it was a time where you weren't allowed to replace candles in footlights because um, if you replace it by electricity, then you see too well.
10: Forget about candle footlights. This is a $16 million high-tech set and many critics and opera fans complained it got in the way of the music.
11: I think the, the controversy over it was partly over the malfunctions, but also partly over the objections of, of some critics and some audience members over the effectiveness of the machine, as as it's called, as a way of presenting the story. On the other hand, there are a lot of people in the audience and and some critics who actually liked it a lot. So it's, you know, it's there's kind of mixed reaction to it.
10: Lepage says some audience members told him his version made Wagner's opus almost painless, in particular, the four and a half hour long Siegfried.
2: I don't want to sound crass, but you know some of the most amazing uh, compliments that I've had are people saying, you know, I've seen 50 Siegfrieds and this is the shortest one I've ever seen. What did you cut?
10: Lepage didn't cut anything, but his mesmerizing production seems to make the 15 hour opera cycle fly by. You can judge for yourself. Robert Lepage's production of Wagner's Ring is currently being shown in movie theaters around the country. It returns to the Metropolitan Opera in New York next season. For the world, this is Adeline Sill.
0: You can see photos of Robert Lepage's tectonic set at theworld.org. There's also a trailer for a documentary about the making of this ring cycle. Again, it's at theworld.org. 4,000 boxes of roses and carnations feature in today's GeoQuiz. A huge shipment of fresh Colombian flowers arrived at Miami International Airport today. They were the very first products to enter the U.S. under a free trade agreement with Colombia that's gone into effect. The South American nation does a lot of business in cut flowers. Most of them are grown in a vast plateau or savanna that we want you to name today. It's in central Colombia, stretched out along the Andes. Good soil, stable temperatures, and lots of sunny days make this one of the best growing regions in the world. So where did most of our Mother's Day roses come from? not counting the florists? We'll find out later in the program. You're listening to The World on PRI. That's Public Radio International.
7: I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, the story of two brothers born to an American couple in revolutionary China. One says the way they looked made it tough to fit in. You
6: know, the standard American look, you know, red hair, tall, and uh, big nose. So I feel depressed at the way I looked. Mm -hmm. The World is
3: supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. The 1960s, 70s, and 80s were a turbulent time in many Latin American countries. Popular insurrection threatened authoritarian regimes. Military and security forces resorted to ruthless tactics to cling to power. Today, several Latin American nations are making strides to examine their painful past. But to reveal the full story... They need documentation, and that's hard to come by. A handful of human rights crusaders have worked to unearth new evidence of those so-called dirty wars. Among them is Kate Doyle. She directs the evidence project at the National Security Archive. This week, Doyle received the Puffin Foundation Award for Human Rights Activism. She won it with Guatemalan forensic anthropologist Freddie Peciarelli. Kate Doyle's gone to great lengths to get some key documents, but sometimes, she says,
8: people come to her with the evidence. In 1999, a group of people gave me a document that had leaked from military intelligence files in Guatemala that that is a kind of registry of the disappeared. It is literally a logbook compiled by a military operational unit that went after suspected subversives, kidnapped them, tortured them for information, and secretly killed them. Those bodies are buried somewhere all over the country. These are hundreds of people. Part of the 40,000 estimated disappeared in Guatemala. And, and that military logbook, which I took out of the country and, and publicized in Washington because of the fear in Guatemala that if it was publicized there, it would endanger people's lives, that logbook is now at the heart of a collective case of forced disappearance inside Guatemala. And some of the bodies of the disappeared chronicled in that military logbook have actually been found on former military base in Chimaltenango, outside Guatemala City. With the DNA laboratory that the forensic anthropologists have been able to use to match the material from family members with the DNA from the bones, we have been able to identify five of the disappeared. That's how vital these documents and the kind of evidence we find in the clandestine cemeteries is to helping account for what happened. How do
0: you get out of the country with documentation like that? I can't imagine that it happens without
8: some kind of threats against you. If I told you all my secrets of my trade, Lisa, I wouldn't be able to do it next time. (laughs) It's called a purse. (laughs) It's called a purse. But is it dangerous? You know, it's dangerous for my partners and colleagues in... In Guatemala and other countries, it's dangerous to live there. It's dangerous on the ground. And people like Freddy Petrelli, the forensic anthropologist, the, the family members of The Disappeared who have never stopped asking for information about the whereabouts of their loved ones, it's dangerous for them. They're targeted. They receive death threats. They receive phone calls at any hour of the night. So they, they need protection. They need support. And it's it's important to shine a light on, on the work they're doing so they can have that protection. You were... Also recently in Peru to testify in a case against the former
0: intelligence chief who was working for President Alberto Fujimori. What was the nature of that case and what was your involvement?
8: Peru's former intelligence chief, Vladimir Montesinos, is already in jail on charges of corruption. He's been convicted of corruption charges He's now been indicted for his involvement in overseeing a commando team that went into the Japanese embassy in 1997 to rescue a group of hostages that had been taken by Peruvian guerrillas and held for a number of months. If, if Alberto Fujimori, the president of Peru, and Vladimir Montesinos, his Inchellus in chief, had left it at that, you know, it was, it was a successful hostage rescue operation. They would have been heroes. Instead, the commando unit decided to turn their guns on their already captive hostage takers and kill them right there in the embassy and outside of the embassy grounds. And so, this indictment on the assassination of the guerrilla hostage shakers in the Japanese embassy are the charges that that, um, were just heard in in a Peruvian courtroom in April. And Vladimir Montesinos was sitting not 10 feet away from me as I testified about a declassified Defense Department document that had been written by officials in the U.S. Embassy in Lima about that commando attack To rescue the hostages, that also resulted in the assassination of these guerrilla hostage takers. So you are facing him, perhaps, him facing you? I wonder what that was like. I have to admit that it was eerie to be sitting in the courtroom with the former chief of intelligence of Peru, a man known for the most venal, corrupt dealings, and his involvement and oversight of some of the most terrible human rights crimes in the hemisphere. Yes, it's scary to go up against human rights criminals, but I think all of us who do this work, when we get to go up against them in a court of law, we feel that we are participating in history. And and in that sense, we feel uh, protected and supported.
0: And how about for the people in these countries themselves, when, when a society in Latin America is engaged in a debate about whether or not it even makes sense to look back, uh, let alone uncover the bones themselves, how do you see that argument? Uh, because there is an argument that says, look, let the past remain in the past.
8: Latin America suffered its own kind of Holocaust in the 20th century. It's hard for us as U.S. citizens to conceive of the dimensions of the violence that took place during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, basically on behalf of an anti-communist ideology that the United States promulgated in the region. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Civilians, unarmed civilians were killed. Hundreds of thousands more were disappeared by their governments. The family members of the disappeared will never Forget what happened, and will never walk away from from the fate of their loved ones, so to me it's a false argument, this idea that you can somehow bury a past as painful as that, ignore the continued um, search on the part of hundreds of thousands of people, from mothers and sons and sisters and brothers, um, and and somehow pretend that that healthy functioning democratic societies can go forward without coming to terms with the fact that their own institutions targeted their civilians for death of course here you are an american
0: speaking in a judiciary in a latin american country where very often the offenses you're talking about happened with with us complicity does that affect your credibility
8: That's right. The United States supported the militaries and police institutions in Latin America through millions of dollars of aid, through training, through intelligence services. But that support translated into the documentation that those same U.S. officials created describing our support and the allied militaries we were working with, whether they were in Guatemala, Peru, Argentina, Chile. Those documents today form the core of some of the key evidence that we use in these trials. The Latin American militaries are unwilling to turn over their records. So when you have stonewalling on the part of the military and resistance on the part of the government of of a place like Guatemala or Peru, for example, the U.S. declassified documents from that same era can provide us with a door into understanding how the violence took place. Thank
0: you, Kate Doyle, who directs the evidence project at the nonprofit National Security Archive. This week, she received the Puffin Foundation Award for Human Rights Activism, one of the major prizes in the field of human rights. Very nice to speak with you, Kate. Congratulations. Thank you, Lisa. Here's a story about the U.S. and China told through the lives of two brothers. Bill and Fred Angst were born in China. Their parents were Americans who moved to China in the 1940s to take part in the Communist Revolution. The brothers grew up on a dairy farm, and theirs was the only American family in town. Reporter Yo-Wei Shaw has their story.
7: When you meet the Angst brothers, it's hard not to ask questions, especially when you hear them speak. Or watch Bill singing with his Chinese choir. The brothers are used to curious looks. When they were kids in China, they'd even stop traffic.
6: The people from the bus station had to come get us into their office to hide us so people can move away and uh, get the the traffic going.
7: (laughs) Bill, who's 57, now lives in New Jersey and works as an engineer. He's the younger brother, and at six foot three, the taller one. Like Fred, he's got gray thinning hair, but he used to be a redhead.
6: You know, the standard American look, you know, red hair, tall, and uh, big nose. So I feel depressed at the way I looked. Yeah, this is a picture of me in Nanjing when I'm sick.
7: I've seen old photos, and, and Bill and Fred today, looked like completely are... normal, even cute white guys. But in China, they struggled to fit in. Here's Fred, speaking via Skype.
9: Yeah, my parents trying to teach us English, but I see no point whatsoever to learn English.
7: Fred teaches economics at a university in Beijing. So one brother lives in China and the other in the U.S. And that's no coincidence. The brothers disagree about a lot of things, and they fight, often about world politics. Bill's wife, Jan Kao, can tell you.
9: Sometimes when it's carried too far, and they talked too long, and then
11: we want to say, stop.
7: But at least they're talking. For many years, the brothers weren't close. Bill says it's partly because his big brother, Fred, was always telling him what to do. Like during the Cultural Revolution, when the government sent Bill to work on a tea farm in southern China.
6: I didn't want to go. I was so mad. And my brother came, criticized me for not accepting the offer. If the government sent you to a place you have to go, you should not ask questions. You should not pick where you want to go. So I accepted.
7: At the time, Bill says if you didn't agree with the Communist Party line, you were just wrong.
6: Quite often, you know, I was just thinking to myself, I know I'm wrong, but I don't know why. And I don't dare to raise that up. Because if I raised it, I would be criticized by my brother, so I don't really open up to him.
7: Bill says he learned to keep his doubts and opinions to himself, even after the brothers moved to the U.S. as adults. Then in 1989... Bill says he went through a personal crisis, watching the Tiananmen Square protests on TV.
9: This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting from Tiananmen Square in Beijing,
1: China.
6: I was nervous. God, if people get scared, they're going to run. They're going to trip some people, and then people might die. At that time, I could not imagine the Chinese government will send troops to start killing people. You know, That's the biggest shock I have against the Chinese government and the whole belief system.
7: Since then, Bill says he's had to rethink everything he was taught over the years. Fred also went through a period of questioning, but his happened when his marriage broke up, and he reached out to his brother. Fred says it was a turning point in their relationship.
9: To be close to anybody, you need to open up yourself. You don't open up yourself, and you cannot expect people to open up to you.
7: Fred moved back to China in 2007, but the two brothers check in regularly on Skype, and they argue about the U.S. and China, Fred remains skeptical of the American system of democracy.
9: So what if you can speak up in the U.S. But if they speak up and being an imperialist power, and then still imperialism, uh, my brother probably doesn't see that. More like seeing the reason. I don't know what. See, that's what. That's why I need to talk more.
6: The more I talk, the more I think, the more I believe in myself, and the more I dare to challenge the past and challenge him. <laughs> But all our conversations are in a friendly term. We don't have any uh, negative feelings towards each other.
7: But these debates sometimes dredge up painful memories. In the interviews, each brother broke down at one point, talking about the past. For Bill, the trigger was being sent down to the tea farm. He can still remember the song he used to play on accordion there. (laughs) ¶¶
6: I was very emotional. I start thinking back of all the youth that got sent down to China.
7: For Fred, it was missing the egalitarian environment of the Chinese wood factory, where he was sent to work at around the same time.
9: I would dream about the people I work with, and um, I was missing so much that, that environment. Uh, give me a minute. <laughs>
7: each brother is trying to understand where the other is coming from, and they both say the fighting has brought them closer together, even though they're geographically so far apart. For The World, I'm Yo-Wei Shaw.
0: You can see photos of Fred and Bill Angst at theworld.org. Now, here's something else the Angst brothers might just argue about. It's a new study that explores what China's booming economy means in terms of happiness. Researchers looked at surveys of life satisfaction in China since 1990. Even though many Chinese have more money now than they did 20 years ago, that has not translated into more happiness. In fact, the study finds that happiness has generally declined in China over the past two decades. Roses, politics, and music still to come. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. A new free trade agreement between the U.S. and Colombia went into effect today. And the very first shipment of goods under that agreement was a plain load of fresh-cut Colombian flowers. Already, it's estimated that three out of every four cut flowers sold in this country was grown in Colombia. The free trade agreement may boost flower imports from the South American nation even further. Augusto Solano is the president of the Colombian Association of Flower Exporters. It's a huge business, Mr. Solano. So I wonder how much bigger it could get as a result of this uh, free trade agreement between the U.S. and Colombia.
12: Well, the free trade agreement is very important for the flower growers in Colombia, mainly because the uncertainty ends, mainly because now we have the guarantee of the access. But uh, from the economic point of view, there's no change. For 21 years, Colombian flowers have been entering the U.S. market free of uh, duties, but these preferences were renewed periodically. Now it's going to be permanent. It's part of an agreement. So that's the main thing, but there's no change from the economic point of view. What
0: is the number one most imported flower from Colombia to the U.S.?
12: Well, certainly roses, roses and carnations, but the main characteristics of the Colombian flower industry is the wide portfolio of uh, species and different flowers. We're talking about uh, 100 species. You know, roses are one species, carnations another one. Altogether, Colombia handles 1,600 varieties of flowers that have commercial value. So that's why we've been able to develop the bouquet business for the supermarkets.
0: And how does that work? When they come from the growing fields in the plains and the plateaus of Colombia, where do they get shipped to first en route to the U.S.?
12: Well, usually they arrive in Miami. Ninety-five percent of all the flowers imported into the United States, they arrive in Miami. Then the flowers are trapped everywhere in the United States, as you name it, California, New York, uh, Chicago, and it works very well. The flowers are ripe and with the right quality there.
0: There have been cases, as you know, in the past of drug shipments being hidden among the flowers. What has your organization, as large as it is, done to prevent that kind of illegal activity?
12: Okay, many things all along the chain, even in the transportation, there are special seals. And then when it gets to the airport, to the warehouses, before they enter, everything is x-rayed and everything is taped, is recorded, so you can keep the history and track. And there's the police, and there's inspection, but this is a huge business that tries to use everything, so you, all the time you have to be alert. But one thing that is important to know is that this free trade agreement maybe is the best way to fight the drug business in Colombia. A lot of the people growing coca in the fields, in the mountains, they do that just for a living, just because they don't have how to make a living. If we give them opportunities of uh, legitimate and decent jobs, they don't do that. Big money is done somewhere else, even abroad in the markets. So this FTA brings that. We're going to have more Colombian business, and people will have opportunities to have a, a legitimate job. That's maybe, for me, the best way to fight against the drug business.
0: Augusto Solano, president of the Colombian Association of Flower Exporters. The answer to our geoquiz today is one of the main growing areas for these flowers. It is Sabana de Bogota, which is the plateau region where so many flowers that come to the U.S. are grown. Very nice to talk to you, Mr. Solano.
12: Thank you very much, Lisa.
0: Our final segment today is a mix of politics and music. Egyptians head to the polls next week to vote for president. It's going to be Egypt's first open presidential vote since Hosni Mubarak was forced to step down last year. Thirteen candidates are on the ballot, ranging from former Mubarak regime officials to Islamists. Egyptian expatriates got a jump start. They began casting their absentee ballots last week, among them singer Fatma Zidane. She was born in Egypt, but she's lived in Denmark for the past few years. Zidane's won numerous Danish music awards, including Best World Music Track in 2008 for this song, Yoma. Fatma Zidane was at home in Copenhagen last year watching the protests in Cairo's Tahrir Square. She thought the push for change in Egypt was long overdue. I can remember from 10 years ago I was asking myself why we don't do anything? Why nobody do anything? Why we, we are sitting and hear what what's going on around us and we don't react? Because I think that's kind of our mentality that we always think about, ah, it will be Okay. And sometimes we don't see what's going on, because we don't want to see. And even now, Zidane says Egyptians need change desperately. We have a lot of problems. People die from problems. People are depressed, doesn't have money, doesn't have a work. Young can't find a future. Their future it's nearly ending. But Fatma Zidane is hopeful that next week's presidential election will begin to usher in the kind of change she says Egypt needs. We have to have a good... Future, then we have to do a lot of things to Egypt to come up again, because Egypt deserved that. And even though she lives in Copenhagen with her Danish husband and her young son, Fatma Zidan is trying to do her part. She travels to Egypt every couple of months to visit family and help with projects that focus on problems such as housing for the elderly and garbage cleanup. And then, of course, there's her music. She says this song called Mazer is about how much she loves Egypt, even though she doesn't live there anymore. That is Denmark-based Egyptian singer Fatma Zidane. Her latest album is called Hawel. That's going to do it for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks a lot for being with us.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
12: PRI, Public Radio International.